Welcome to the Becoming Your Best podcast. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. For those interested in additional resources or services, such as the weekly planners, online planners for Chrome or Outlook, keynotes, live training, coaching, or certification, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. Now, when you listen to an episode that resonates with you, we invite you to share it with your family, friends, and team members so that they can experience the same type of motivation and results in their lives. Also, if you haven't already subscribed, please hit the subscribe button. It works on Apple, Stitcher, Google, or whatever platform you're using so that you can get a new podcast reminder each week. Now sit back, let's get started, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. All right, welcome back to our Becoming Your Best podcast listeners. So grateful that you joined us today. This is going to be a big deal for every listener that's listening today. And whether Alzheimer's or dementia has touched you directly in your family or indirectly, it will touch everyone in some form or fashion. And we have with us today one of the world's leading experts, Dr. Thomas Bird from the University of Washington, who, if I understand correctly, was with the University of Washington Department of Neurology and, and worked in you know the genetic side of it for more than 35 years and just an amazing man. And for those listening, I don't know if you know this or not, but my mom passed away three years ago from early onset Alzheimer's. And Dr. Bird was instrumental in helping us get some genetic testing done. And to all of our amazement, she was negative to almost every known variant. And that was a relief to us as the children. But the whole point is that this is a vicious disease that touches a lot of people in the world. And it's also very misunderstood. And this is why I'm so grateful that Dr. Bird has taken the time to be with us today is to help pull back the curtain a little bit on what this all means to us and, and give us a little bit more understanding. And again, I don't know if the numbers are exactly right. I pulled them off, uh, you know, the all-knowing Google. <laughs> but if it's correct, it said 55 million people right now in approximately 2020 have either been diagnosed with or dealing with some form of Alzheimer's or dementia. And by 2030, at least according to that study I read, it said that number could reach up as high as 78 million. So big, big deal. And Dr. Bird, so grateful that you're here with us. Anything that you'd like to say about your background before we jump into, you know, what's really important to our listeners, which is the brain health and everything related to that. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm always delighted to talk about this topic because it's so important and because it's been part of my career for actually uh, 40 or 50 years. So just in terms of my background, I, I'm two, I wear two hats. <laughs> This morning, I have no hat on, but in fact, I, I wear two academic hats, and, and one is a neurologist. I'm a clinically trained neurologist, and the other is I'm a medical geneticist. So my interest has always been in genetic diseases of the brain, and maybe we'll touch on a little later how that happens to interact with uh, Alzheimer's disease. But your, your point is a perfect starting point. And that is how common the disease is. Millions of people have it. And the projection is for millions more to develop it. And that's largely because of its relationship to age. It's perfectly clear that the older the population you're dealing with, the more common is Alzheimer's. The numbers are something like over the age of 85, more than a third of people have dementia. And I'm using that term pointedly, the term 
dementia. Notice I just switched from talking about Alzheimer's disease to mentioning dementia. And if your audience comes away with anything this morning, I think the most important thing for them to recognize is the difference between the words dementia and Alzheimer's disease. It's very confused in the general population. It's confused in the media, and they really are two different terms. Dementia is the larger term, and dementia simply means a serious compromise of cognitive thinking and memory problems. And there are dozens and dozens of things that can cause dementia, toxins, poisons, head trauma, all sorts of things. And Alzheimer's disease is a more specific type of dementia. So it's one of the causes of dementia. When you read about dementia in the news media, you want to be careful to see, are they talking about dementia? Are they talking about Alzheimer's disease? Do they know what they're talking about? And the background of Alzheimer's is really fascinating. If you just allow me to take a couple of minutes to mention Yeah, take whatever time you need. Where did that term come from? Well, what happened was about approximately 110 years ago, a neurology psychiatrist in Germany by the name of Dr. Professor Alois Alzheimer saw a patient who was actually 50 years old, a woman, who met criteria that we would now call dementia. She had loss of cognitive functions, loss of thinking, loss of memory, and it progressed and got worse. He wore lots of different hats, and one of the hats he wore was he was also a neuropathologist. But when that patient died, he was able to obtain her brain at an autopsy and look at her brain under the microscope. And he was amazed what he found. He found two things that he described and reported. And one of them was a thing called plaques. She had plaques in her brain. You know, you talk about plaque on your teeth. It's just an accumulation of stuff that shouldn't be there. And so she had these lumps of plaques in her brain and had thousands and thousands of them. In addition to that, inside her nerve cells, inside her neurons, she had tangled material that shouldn't be there. And so they were in neurons, so he called them neurofibrillary tangles. And he reported that at one, one single person, one single case, and that became so famous that that disease became known as Alzheimer's disease. And that defines the disease. It's a person who has progressive dementia. And when you look at their brain, they have these plaques and these tangles. And the major advances in science in the last 30 years has been to define what those plaques and tangles consist of. And it turns out that the plaques consist of a protein called amyloid. And if you follow the media on Alzheimer's disease, you'll see a lot of talk about amyloid. And the neurofibrillary tangles are composed of a protein called tau. And when you see, you know, in the last few years, there have been almost monthly reports about attempts to treat Alzheimer's disease. And the approach they're taking is try to get rid of these two proteins in the brain. And so a lot of the approaches are called anti-amyloid approaches, and that's an attempt to remove or prevent the accumulation of these amyloid plaques in the brain. And for more than a decade, those approaches were unsuccessful. They were negative 
studies, negative, 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 and people became quite frustrated. But in the last two years, there have actually been two positive studies. There have been two studies that are attempting to remove amyloid from the brain. They seem to do it, and it has slowed down the progression of the disease, at least statistically. It doesn't cure the disease. It doesn't stop the disease, but it slows it down a little bit. And so there's a lot of enthusiasm about continuing that sort of approach. It requires intravenous medication. It's very expensive. And as I say, it doesn't cure the disease. So it's a long way to go, but at least it's a start. So that's the, that's the key thing is to understand that dementia is the larger category. And it simply means confusion, cognitive problems, loss of memory. And Alzheimer's is one of those causes of dementia. And it's, it's considered the most common cause of dementia, especially in the elderly. And the two things that correlate with the frequency of Alzheimer's disease or your likelihood of developing it are two things, and that's age. The older you get, the more likely you are to experience it, and genetics. So the more people you have in your family who have had dementia, the more likely you are to also develop it. So there are strong genetic components to Alzheimer's disease. And they vary from being absolute, where if you have a mutation in a particular gene, you will get Alzheimer's disease. And you usually get it at an early age, meaning before the age of 65 or 70. There are other genetic factors that don't cause the disease, but if you happen to have them, your risk goes up. Those are fascinating pieces of what's known about the disease. And they hopefully will give us clues to ways to uh, treat the disease. The genetic forms are quite rare. The ones where they're caused by a specific gene represent about 1% of all Alzheimer's disease. So they're not at all common. But if you happen to have it in your family, your risk goes way up. On this note, Dr. Bird, this was a real gut check for us because when I talked with you five years or so ago, when my mom was tested, we had her do whatever blood panel it was that you recommended. And if I remember right, you said, hey, just so that you kids know, meaning there's six of us children, I'm pretty sure, you know, based on her age, being in her early 50s, mid 50s, that she's going to test positive to this rare you know, genetic variation. And if she has that, there's a 50-50 chance that each of you children likewise have it. And if I remember the number right, you said it was something like a 95% predictor of early onset Alzheimer's. In other words, it's kind of like that death sentence you're referring to, a very strong correlation. So we were going through my brothers and sister, who would want to get tested? I do, I don't, I do, I don't. And uh, surprisingly, she came back negative to all of those, you know, which kind of left it as a mystery to us as to why she ever had that. She did get a pretty significant virus, her and her sisters, when they went to uh, Cambodia and Malaysia, and that sickness lasted for a year. And we wonder if that had something to do with it, but, you know, I don't know. So this is kind of a fascinating topic, isn't it? I mean, for as much as we do know, there's still so much it seems like we don't know. A huge amount is unknown. You know, you know, I talked about those two proteins that accumulate in the brain, the, the amyloid and the tau, but in fact, no one knows why they're accumulating. Why do some brains accumulate it and others don't? If you happen to have the genetic variety, that's an explanation. But for the vast majority of people, they do not have the genetic variety. And so why is it accumulating and why is it not accumulating in other brains? And that's, that's simply unknown. I'm curious to hear your perspective on this, having been, you know, your life's work on this. 
Alzheimer's as well as, you know, heart disease and other things just seem to have skyrocketed since the 70s. I don't know if that's directly attributed to, you know, the diet that we have or what it is, or is it just that we're tracking these more than we used to track them? What is your opinion on that? I mean, do you see, is there a correlation with where we are today over the last 50 years in our diet with processed foods, things like that? Or is it just that we're tracking better than we used to and it's been this way always? Yeah, good question. You're asking me to uh, guess, and so I will guess. It's my personal opinion. I think the major factor is the aging of the population. So, you know, when when I started as a doctor more than 50 years ago, you hardly ever heard of a person living to be 100 years old. That was a big deal. And if somebody lived to be 100 years old, they would get their picture in the paper and they'd have a, you know, a big birthday celebration. It was a huge deal. You just didn't see it very often. Nowadays, 50 years later, that's not so rare. You can go to uh, any retirement home or nursing home in the country and you'll find somebody who's 100 years old. And that's because people are living longer. The average age of the population has gone up. And there's no question about that. The number of people over the age of 80 is much higher now than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And it's even going to be higher in the coming years. And I think that certainly in terms of dementia and Alzheimer's, I think that's the number one issue. No one's really been able to relate it to changes in diet or processed food. I, I don't think that's, I don't think that's the answer. But it does raise the question of, you know, are there things you can do to prevent dementia? And I use the term dementia now because there are other causes of dementia beside Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, that's a good reminder for, I keep interchanging them as if they were the same thing, right? And so you're distinguishing Alzheimer's as being directly related with age. But what you're about to lead into is that dementia can have a lot of other potential causes. Is that correct? Right. In fact, there have been research studies that have shown that people who stop smoking and people who treat their high blood pressure and people who treat their high cholesterol and high lipids and people who exercise and people who have a good diet and people who stay mentally active have a reduced frequency of developing dementia. And it's, it's quite clear that that is the case. And that's often said to be, well, they're reducing their incidence of Alzheimer's disease, but it may not be that they're actually reducing Alzheimer's disease. They're reducing other causes of dementia. There's something called vascular dementia, which is not Alzheimer's disease. It's problems with the blood vessels in the brain that are weakening and causing damage to the brain. That's called vascular dementia. And there's no question that that's related to blood pressure and diabetes and smoking. And so if you treat those kinds of things, your blood vessels are happier, your heart's happier, and your chances of developing dementia actually go down. It's probably not Alzheimer's disease that's going down, but who cares? (laughs) If you're preventing your chances of developing dementia, that's important. So those things do help and they are recommended, but they may not actually be affecting Alzheimer's disease. It may be other kinds of dementia. That reminds me to mention that Alzheimer's disease doesn't stand alone in these diseases that affect older people. It turns out there's an overlap 
between Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease. There's an overlap between Alzheimer's disease and ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. There's an overlap between Alzheimer's disease and another kind of dementia called frontotemporal dementia. Bruce Willis, the uh, actor, apparently has frontotemporal dementia. So that's another cause. So the, the proteins that are accumulated in the brain in Alzheimer's also accumulate in different places in different diseases. And so there's, there's actually overlap. For example, people with Parkinson's can become demented and that overlaps with Alzheimer's disease. People with ALS can develop problems with their memory and thinking and that overlaps with Alzheimer's disease. So it's quite, it's quite complicated, but it's possible that finding a treatment for one of those may affect Alzheimer's and finding a treatment for Alzheimer's may affect those others. So it's a fascinating topic. Yeah, it sounds like they're close cousins in, in many ways and that there is a lot of overlap. So there's a lot of people listening to this, Dr. Bird, say who are in their 30s, their 40s. And there's this tendency, at least I was there, you know, I was a fighter pilot for 11 years flying F-16s. And I think there's this tendency to treat our bodies maybe kind of like a car. In other words, unless there's a clunking or unless there's an abnormal noise, we just keep driving it many times, you know, rather than being very proactive about changing the transmission fluid and the oil and, and so on. So with our bodies yeah. in the 20s and 30s and maybe even early 40s, many times they seem to run pretty well. Not always, but in, to your point, the majority of people don't have major issues at that phase in their life. And so, hey, whatever, I'll just eat anything I want. I don't need to exercise until all of a sudden things start to catch up with us. And so I guess my question where I'm going with that is someone in their 20s, 30s, 40s, what are things that they ought to be thinking about really to be cognizant of this kind of stuff coming down the road, what are things that they probably ought to be thinking about and doing at that phase? And then I'm going to shift the question to 50s, 60s, 70s. What are things that people can be doing and thinking about? And there's probably overlap in those answers, but let's start with the younger group, 20, 30, 40s. What does that group ought to be thinking about or doing? As you say, they need to be uh, checking their oil and their transmission fluid rather than just ignoring those kinds of things. And what that means is taking care of your general health. There are things that seem simple, although for some people they're actually difficult. And, and examples of that would be smoking. It's perfectly clear that smoking is bad for your health and it's bad for your brain. And the same goes with alcohol. If somebody is drinking alcoholic beverages to excess, that's not good. Another thing is your weight. Keep track of your weight. Obesity leads to all kinds of problems. You want to Take care of that. And then have health checkups from time to time, and particularly check your blood pressure. High blood pressure can occur at any age. And if your doctor says you've got high blood pressure, which is also called hypertension, you need to keep track of that. And if it's uh, too high, it needs to be treated and it can be treated. So that's important. The same goes with diabetes. You know, you get your blood sugar checked. And if you develop early diabetes, you want to treat that. So being proactive, finding out about those things and uh, treating them early probably makes a, a very big difference. And, and those same things go for people in middle age, people in their 40s, 50s and 60s. The same thing goes, except that things like high blood pressure are beginning to be even more common. Diabetes is beginning to be more common. So you need to be sure you find out whether or not you have those conditions. And if you do, treat them. 
And probably the same thing probably goes for high lipids, high cholesterol and uh, high LDLs and things like that. You want to, uh, if your doctor says these ought to be treated, go ahead and treat them. One of the things that's not clear at all is the whole business about diet. There are certainly bad diets, but whether there's a specific diet that prevents dementia is not so clear. People talk a lot about the Mediterranean diet, but I think there's general agreement that uh, large amounts of red meat, large amounts of fats, large amounts of carbohydrates are not good. You want to keep those to a minimum and emphasize fruits and vegetables. I think that's true. And I think that's also good for your general health and it may be good for brain health as well. Can I ask you a question on that note? And I don't know if you're familiar with this. I just happen to be listening to the book right now, The End of Alzheimer's by Dr. Bredesen, The Bredesen Protocol. Are you familiar with that by chance? Yes. What are your thoughts on that? I think he's actually talking about dementia. I think so, because that's where I'm going with this. On this discussion, it sounds like what he's really focused on is dementia. Yeah, that's where it gets tricky. He, he'll use the term Alzheimer's disease. And the recommendations he makes are solid, good recommendations. But whether they actually prevent Alzheimer's disease is not so clear. But I think they do lower your risk of developing other kinds of dementia, like vascular dementia. As I said, you know, who cares if you're lowering your risk for dementia? That's what you want to do. I'm not so sure it's affecting what we call Alzheimer's disease, but it is good to help you prevent other kinds of dementia, which, which is fine. So I'm really glad you've distinguished those. I mean, I, I've spent more than a thousand hours probably just studying stuff related to the brain since my mom's diagnosis. And even though I knew there was a difference, even this, this short conversation is even clarifying that more for me about how often we probably are overlapping and using those terms when we really shouldn't be. And so maybe here's a separate question. A lot of people are diagnosed with Alzheimer's now on the Alzheimer's side of it, not the dementia side. And you can share your thoughts any direction you want on this, but I'm just going where this conversation is taking us. Number one, how does someone look at their genetics if they want to? Because I realize this is a sensitive subject for some people. Some people don't want to know, right? If they have certain things, but others say, hey, I have the APOE4, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, if I have the APOE4 variation, maybe there are things I can do to offset my risk. Or maybe there's not. I don't know. That's where my question is going with you. So number one, where can someone look at these genetic tests and get them? And number two, on the Alzheimer's side of it, now the genetic side, are there things people can do to offset it? I mean, these things that we've talked about already, or is it just, it is what it is, or is it a little bit of genetics slash environmental? So it's good that you mentioned uh, APOE. So that's a protein that's controlled by a gene. It's called the APOE gene. It has to do with lipid metabolism in the body and in the brain. And it's been shown for quite a few years now that there, there are various genetic types of APOE. And there's one that's called type 4. And if you happen to inherit type 4, your risk for Alzheimer, Alzheimer's disease is a little higher. If you inherit two copies of the APOE4, one from your father and one from your mother, your risk for Alzheimer's disease is even higher. It's not 100%. It's not even 90%, but it is higher than the general population. And that test is available. Doctors can order it. People can actually have it done, you know, in these uh, 23andMe and genetic testing that you can get without a doctor's prescription. Yeah, they are, they ask you specifically if you do or do not want APOE, but if you say you do, they'll do it. You can find out if you have the APOE4 genotype or not. 
to me, there are a couple of problems with that. One is that can scare people because if it comes back positive for APOE, they think, oh my God, I'm going to develop Alzheimer's disease. And that's not true. You can have APOE4 and not develop Alzheimer's disease. It's, it's not a one for, one for one relationship. It just increases your risk a bit. But then I, to me, it's a little bit silly to say, oh, I've got that, so I need to take care of my health. I think, I think people should take care of their health, whether they have APOE4 or not. Back to the dementia discussion, right? Because it's going to help either way. You need to do those things. Maybe having APOE4 makes them try a little harder, but you should be aware of and take care of your health, whether you got APOE4 or not. And you shouldn't become depressed and unhappy and give up if you do have APOE4. And also, if you don't have APOE4, you shouldn't say, oh, there I go. I can smoke and drink and be wild and, uh, and gain 100 pounds and, you know, I'm going to be I'm going to be fine. That, that's not the case either. So I think people have to think carefully about it and not overreact to the test one way or the other. Can I ask another question related to, gen- to genetic testing? To your point, and, you know, having watched my mom go through this, I got the 23andMe test. And then I uploaded my raw data to a place called Nebula Genomics. And I'm sure there's others, you know, multiple places like that. But for me, that was more confusing than it was helpful because it was showing these different tests that were almost conflicting in what they were showing. It just wasn't helpful to me. So I don't know much more about nebula genomics other than that's just one of many that are out there. And for me, it was more confusing than it was helpful as it had these different interpretations based on studies. So I guess my question is for all these people listening out there, number one, why get genetic testing done? What's the benefit of doing that? or not getting it done? And what's the benefit of not getting it done? I mean, you just alluded to one, it's not going to freak some people out, but why get genetically tested? Like what's the advantage to doing that? And 23andMe is the basic one, right? That's the APOE4. There's obviously others that like what you had my mom do at the University of Washington, they have much more detailed panels. So what's the advantage to getting that done versus not? The APOE4 is the only one that's generally available. And we've just talked about that. There are reasons you might want to do it and reasons you might not. And you have to be careful not to overinterpret it. The other genetic tests, so as I mentioned, there are some genes that have been identified, and if you have a variant or a mutation in those genes, the chances you will get Alzheimer's disease goes way up to like greater than 95%. There are three genes like that. They're called presenilin 1, presenilin 2, and APP, and there are families that have mutations in one of those three genes, and they have a very high risk for Alzheimer's disease. Those families, as I mentioned, are very rare. It's less than 1% of all Alzheimer's have those genes. And the tests are not readily available. You can't get those tests through 23andMe and those other kinds of uh, general commercial uh, labs. They have to be ordered by a physician from certain genetic laboratories. You just can't get them willy-nilly. The only reasons you would do that are two. One is if your family is full of dementia, and then you should talk to your doctor. By full of dementia, I mean, for example, if you have two or three generations where there are five or six people with dementia, that's more than usual, and that that would be a good reason to get those genetic tests done. The other is age, and that's what you dealt with with your mother. Those Mutations in those three genes tend to produce early onset Alzheimer's disease, frequently with onset before age 60. 
And in some people before age 50, there are people who get Alzheimer's in their 40s, and they're much more likely to have mutations in one of those genes. So if you have very early onset, or if you have a very strong family history, you should talk to your doctor about the possibility of ordering one of those rare genetic tests. But other than that, they're, they're not available, and, and, uh, and I wouldn't do it. And if you just have one family member, like a father or a mother, or an aunt or an uncle, with uh, dementia or Alzheimer's, it's not worth doing it. And what you really need, if you do one of those tests, is you need someone who has the disease. Because if you're testing people in the family who don't have the disease, who are, who are not demented, they may be negative, but the gene could still be in the family and they just haven't inherited it. So you have to have somebody who's got the dementia and get a blood sample from them that's the person that you have to test because you have to go where the go where the dementia is to find those positive tests but but as you discovered you can meet the criteria of having really early onset like 50 and you still may not have a mutation in one of those genes but there's something unusual about having dementia that early and so it may well be that there's a genetic factor and it's a genetic factor that we haven't discovered I just know several people that are also in a similar situation, although they're a little bit later. And I don't want to spend too much time on this because it is such a small subset of the population. But in that case, where there isn't a genetic propensity or variation, but someone is diagnosed with it at, say, 50 or 55, is that what you would call, say, extremely rare, very rare, rare, to not have any genetic? 50-55 is rare and unusual. And so you, you need to be seen by a neurologist. First of all, they need to, to come to the conclusion of whether it really is Alzheimer's or not. It could be one of these other kinds of dementia. One that I mentioned was frontotemporal dementia. That kind of dementia is more common in the 50s and 60s. So the person may be demented, but they may actually not have Alzheimer's. They could have frontotemporal dementia, and there are tests and MRIs and PET scans and so forth that can sort that out. Another one that we didn't mention is called Lewy body dementia. You may hear about that. There are people who have Lewy body dementia. I have a person in my family who has Lewy body dementia. That's the overlap with Parkinson's disease, and that's not Alzheimer's. But that can occur at a relatively early age. So if you've got an early, early onset dementia, you need to be seen by a neurologist, and they need to sort out what kind of dementia it's likely to be. And then if, if they decide it's probably Alzheimer's, and you're 50 years old or 55 years old, I would say that's a point where you, you need to check those rare genes to be sure whether or not you happen to have that or happen to be in your family. For example, I've seen people who had no family history of it. They had the onset of dementia at 48. They had no family history of it. And then we discovered they were adopted. <laughs> and so, you know, all, all bets are off. You, you don't know your family history. That's another reason for getting the genetic testing done if you have early onset disease. So here's maybe a final question. And boy, we could go for two hours talking about this. You know, with what's coming down the road related to either dementia or Alzheimer's, what are some things that you see? You're right on the leading edge of research in many cases. So what are some things that you see coming down the road that might have an impact in a positive way on dementia or Alzheimer's? Well, in, in terms of treatment for Alzheimer's, there are two major approaches that are being used. One, as I said, is trying to reduce the amyloid plaque in the brain. And there have been some recent 
modest successes at that, but any success is excellent. And so it looks like that's a pathway that researchers and drug companies are going to continue to approach to try and find things that bind to and remove the amyloid plaque in the brain. But it's also clear that that's not enough. So another path is to go after that other protein, and that's the tau that's in the neurofibrillary tangles. And the approaches to that are behind the uh, are, are falling behind the amyloid approaches because those uh, tau proteins are in the neurons, so they're hard, harder to get your drug into the the nerve cell. But the general philosophy is that it will take both kinds of drugs to uh, take care of Alzheimer's. And the the example is is cancer. There are many kinds of cancer, for example, where the people do better when they have more than one therapeutic approach. Many people who are getting a treatment for cancer are getting, you know, like two different cancer drugs, and they have a better chance of success than just one. And it's likely that Alzheimer's is going to go that way. You may need to remove both the plaque and the tangle before you really approach success with the disease. It also is possible that that there are other degenerative processes in the brain that need to be attacked that people haven't even started to attack yet. And one of those is the Lewy bodies. That's another protein. And that accumulates sometimes in Alzheimer's. And you need to figure out a way to attack that. And there's even a fourth protein that, that probably people have never heard of. It's called TDP43. But it's a hot topic in the Alzheimer research field. And that's another protein that's accumulating in the brain. People are beginning to think about trying to remove that as well. So there are multiple approaches going on. It takes time. It's very expensive to do appropriate clinical studies. It's very expensive to come up with the treatments. And so the, the time factor is huge, but it's well worth it. And I think, I think particularly a combination of the government and National Institutes of Health and the uh, Veterans Administration and drug companies need to get together and keep pursuing this because the disease is so devastating and so common. I keep saying last question, but I just think this is such an important topic. So maybe uh, we'll go for just a few more minutes if that's all right with you, and then we'll wrap this up. Uh, but I had another question, and it's been interesting, and I don't know if this is COVID-related or what it is related, but it seems like a lot of people I've talked with, especially since COVID, which I don't know if that has anything to do with it or not, have seen an increase in things like brain fog, head pressure, just things like that, yet they haven't seen cognitive decline, but they've seen other things like head pressure, you know, like I'm talking about that brain fog, and just not quite being able to put your finger on it, but just saying, you know, it's just not quite right. When you take a cognitive assessment, they're still okay in that arena. So for someone that falls right there, what would you suggest to that person, since I know a lot of people are in that area right now? If they've had COVID, that's something to uh, think about because there, there's no question that you can get over the the acute symptoms of COVID, but it can it can linger in some people for a long time. So that certainly can be a factor. And there are so many other things that can play a role, and you need to think about them and sort them out. And another is the medications or drugs that people are taking. They can have side effects. And those side effects can be to fog your thinking, fog your brain. And it sometimes can be surprising, you know, things people take for take for a runny nose or take for a sore throat or take, for example, to get to sleep at night. All of those kinds of things, over-the-counter kinds of medications can 
fog the brain. Another thing I that I can see happening is, you know, like air pollution. In uh, the Seattle area, the last few summers, we've been inundated with smoke from forest fires. It's just been incredible. The, uh, you know, if you, you look at your phone and look at your air pollution index on your phone, we've had some very high indexes and you can see the folk, the smoke in the environment. And you get out there and you start smelling that and, uh, there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that, that 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 can fog your thinking and fog your brain. So that I think there's things floating around in the air. There are kinds of air pollution that can do that too. And then all the your attitude and uh, things like worry and anxiety and depression can also do that. And and I I think we're living through very difficult times. When you look what's going on in the political theater. You look what's going on in the Ukraine. You look what's going on in Palestine and Gaza. And you look what's going on in Syria. And, you know, people see that and read it in the news every day. I think that gets on people's minds. It gets on my mind, I know. I think that can cause a little brain fogging sometime. So I think there are multiple factors. And and the other thing is aging. When you talk to your friends and neighbors, they're all older than they used to be. <laughs> where, where would you say, because you're also a neurologist, where would you say, though, is a typical time where aging might play a role in that, even though I know that it's still possible to have a healthy brain? Where do you start to see people complain about that more often? Is it just too general of an, a question? I think it's too general. I, you know, there are people in their 40s. I see people in their 40s that worry about it sometime, and they probably shouldn't. I have friends who are in their 90s. And their brains are just as sharp as you can imagine. They're, they're, you know, they're reading, they're writing, they're, they're still occupied. Sometimes they still have their jobs. And I'm amazed to see these people in their 90s doing so well. So it can happen at any age. But people in their 70s and 80s, I can, I can tell you for sure, start to complain. A particular common complaint is forgetting names. I'll have this. I, I experienced this myself. I will meet somebody on the street. And I'll know who they are. And I know, I can tell you their age, their occupation, where they went to school, the last time we had a conversation. I just know them really, really well. And I can't think of their name. <laughs> and that, that's, that's, very, that's very frustrating. But I talk to my friends about that, and they all experience that. So there, there are certain things like that are pretty common. And I don't think they're, although they're frustrating, they're not as serious as they may seem. I think a lot of us can relate to that, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Okay, so as we get ready to wrap up here, uh, Dr. Bird, is there any place where, and this is one of the challenges, and here's what the premise for maybe this final question is, when we knew that my mom was going to go down this track, it was like there was this overwhelming abundance of information, but yet no place to start. Eight million websites, but it really is just like over inundation of information and to the point where it's like, well, where do I even start? So if someone's curious about learning more about dementia or Alzheimer's, now notice I'm using those, not inter- I'm separating those now, I've learned. Where's a good starting point for someone to really learn more about those because of the inundation of information? You know, there's a National Alzheimer's Association. It's national. It's very good. They have a lot of good people affiliated with it. They support research. They have a lot of information. They have a website. They have brochures and booklets and so that's the place I would go is the National Alzheimer's Association. I think that's the, the first place to stop and look for information. And most of them have local chapters. Many cities and even small cities 
have a, a chapter of the uh, National Alzheimer's Association. You can often look them up. I used to say look them up in the phone book. I don't think we use phone books anymore, <laughs> but uh, but they're they're locally available, and you can find them uh, when you Google them. Your local city probably has a chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Okay, that's a great starting point. So National Alzheimer's Association, search that up. And I think I actually get a weekly email from them as well because I joined their email list and they have some great stuff. They just share, you know, what's some of the latest on research, clinical trials. And if you're really concerned about the disease and you're worried you might have it or you're worried somebody in your family might have it, you can go to those Alzheimer's associations. Also, most of the large cities around the country have something called uh, Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers. They're called ADRCs, Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers, and there are uh, about 40 of them around the country. Most of the large cities have one. They're funded by the National Institutes of Health. They are specifically there for to see people who are worried about Alzheimer's disease and also plug people into research projects. So if you're in a fairly large metropolitan area, there's usually an Alzheimer's Disease Research Center somewhere near you. So see, I'm so glad you shared that. Having spent more than a thousand hours learning about the brain, I did not know about the research centers, looking those up. I'm just, I've not even heard of that. So I'm going to look those up. I'm curious myself just to see what that looks like. But yeah, we, we, uh, for example, we have one here at the University of Washington in Seattle. Port, Portland has one. I'm pretty sure uh, Salt Lake City has one. San Francisco has one. San Diego has one. Los Angeles has one. And the cities back west and in the Midwest, as I said, there are about 40 of them and they're all, they're spread all over the country and they're, they're just called ADRCs, Alzheimer's Disease Research Centers. Well, Dr. Bird, thank you so much for being on this podcast. This was fascinating, enlightening. Any final comments or words before we wrap up? No, I think I think if people are concerned about dementia, uh, they, they should be. It's a good thing to be concerned about, both for themselves and their family members and for society as a whole. But don't get too concerned. <laughs> don't don't be too worried. If if you forget to somebody's name, don't get too worried about it. Uh, well, it's been an honor having you here, Doctor Bird. Thank you for sharing what you shared to our listeners. Hopefully, this has been helpful to you. As I started out, I'm going to finish with this. Everybody knows somebody that this has touched, whether directly or indirectly, and we know that this is a big deal. So, you know, just being conscious of our brain health, our overall health. A good reminder from Dr. Bird that there are so many things we can do. And, you know, the research gives us a lot of hope. Yet right now, you know, some of the basics we hear about exercise uh, to tie it back into our content, pre-week planning. Someone that does pre-week planning is more likely to make time for those things that are important. So all of that to be said, Dr. Bird, thanks so much for being here. Our listeners, thank you. We hope you have a wonderful day and a great rest of your week. Thank you for listening to the Becoming Your Best podcast. If there was something in this podcast that you felt would be helpful for a family member, a friend, or even a coworker, we invite you to share this podcast with them now while you're thinking about it. Also, remember to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Now, for additional resources and tools, such as how to join our monthly peak performance coaching program, or how to get certified as a trainer or coach, or schedule a workshop or keynote, you can visit our website at becomingyourbest.com. We're here to provide you and your team with the resources, tools, and content to achieve your greatest potential. So thank you for listening and have a wonderful day and a great week.